Boston Podcast Network is proud to present the Academy of Special Needs Planners, the podcast. Now here's your host, Kevin Urbach. Welcome to the Academy of Special Needs Planners podcast. My name is Kevin Urbach. I am the National Director of the Academy of Special Needs Planners. Today, in my continuation of the earlier podcast, I have David Lillisand here with me, and we are talking about the Social Security Administration's fee authorization procedure and whether it applies to special needs attorneys. As I mentioned in the earlier podcast, David has been a Social Security attorney since 1974 to the present, has handled many thousands of fee authorizations and understands these issues with the Social Security Administration very well. I strongly recommend that you listen to the earlier podcast where we talk about some of the background of the fee authorization procedure and why this um, new rule by Social Security has become such an issue. So David, welcome back. Thank you much, Kevin. My pleasure. So I thought we would begin this process because I believe at the end of our last podcast, we were talking about the fee authorization procedure, some practical issues that arose from it, primarily um, the, it takes a long time to get approved. Um, there's a chance that they could reduce your fee significantly. Um, there's no right to appeal that decision. Um, they may lose your paperwork and you have to resubmit multiple times. And so as a result of all of those issues with the fee authorization procedure, I think many attorneys may be looking for an exception. And there are two exceptions that are in the code that may apply to special needs attorneys. One is if a third party, not the person with a disability on SSI, pays your fee, or if a court order authorizes the representative's fee, those are exceptions to the fee authorization process. Is that correct? Yes, I would say that's generally true. It just depends on uh, Social Security has a list of third parties that are approved and those that are not approved. So uh, um, it, it may be the third party being a parent approving a special needs trust for a minor child on SSI right now. That's not a third party that's going to exempt you. Uh, a third party that will definitely exempt you is if a client has uh, legal insurance, and there are um, firms that sell, especially to labor unions, um, that sell uh, uh, legal insurance policies so that if you need any legal help, that's an example where Social Security will say, if they're paying it, then your fee does not have to be approved. So as I understand the third-party exception, basically it's really of very little use in our traditional practice because even having, say, the special needs trust trustee pay your fee after everything is set up and established, that doesn't meet the exception, correct? Yeah, the problem with it, you know, I could maybe make a case for a third-party special needs trust where we have an SSI claimant who is a beneficiary of grandpa's money. Grandpa set up a third-party trust. And maybe spending that money would not directly affect the SSI claimant enough. But clearly, with first-party special needs trust, the SSI claimants in an, uh, an auto accident, they get $100,000, they put it into a trust. Social Security is going to regard that money as being belonging to that SSI claimant, even though they have no direct access 
to that money, the source of that funds, and paying fees, the trustee paying uh, the fee to the attorney to amend the trust, to defend the trust, to do other things, out of that client's beneficiary's first-party money is not going to pass muster with Social Security. It's going to be regarded as the client indirectly paying the fee, which is the standard that's in the actual statute we talked about, 42 U.S.C. Section 406. They specifically use the words the client has to be free from direct or indirect uh, charges uh, without authorization from Social Security. And I, I believe what I read the Code of Federal Regulations, and it's Section 416.1503, it defines that term entity. So if a third-party entity is paying your fee, that really does mean a business, firm, or other association, including but not limited to partnerships, corporations, for-profit, and not-for-profit organizations. So it is a very limited exception and would not really apply from a parent, grandparent, directly paying your fee, um, or an SNT trustee maybe paying your fee later. That Those just aren't in the code, correct? Yeah, that's my, that's my interpretation. If somebody gets charged with a crime, they may want to start challenging each one of these things that on our reading of it, we believe clearly states that, but, you know, sometimes uh, technicalities work for you. I certainly wouldn't recommend anybody practicing law in a way that gets them to be subject to a federal criminal indictment and have to prove their interpretation was correct. So then the other exception that I hear a lot about is the court-approved special needs trust, where the court may also have authorized the attorney's fee in establishment of the trust. And I see in the Code of Federal Regulations at 20 CFR section 1525 subsection E, that it states we do not need to authorize a fee when a court authorizes a fee for your representative based on the representative's actions as your legal guardian or a court-appointed representative. Yeah, um, just to correct the site you just gave, it's 20 CFR section Ah. 416.15. Well, there's actually two sections, 1528, and um, the the other section is 1523. Three, right? Yeah, 1503 um, defines legal guardian, and then there's a section at uh, 1528 that talks about represent- representation of a party in a court proceeding. So yeah. those would be the exceptions for the court-approved fee. The and, issue- I, and I think they're, they're going to be um, – there, there, there's enough room for interpretation there that uh, I'm feeling more comfortable in a scenario where – I've got an SSI claimant who suddenly gets an unplanned inheritance for 50 grand or a PI award for 100. He's about to lose his SSI and his Medicaid unless we do a special needs trust. That's that's my typical case. And um, uh, if the the claimant is also uh, incapacitated, incompetent under our state law, uh, the court has to approve the gross settlement of the personal injury claim. The, the fees for the personal injury attorney and anybody else uh, and the court costs leaving a net amount for the client. And in that scenario, if it's a minor child or if it's an adult incapacitated person, I want to have my fee for preparing the special needs trust on the list 
of fees that are going to be approved by the state court uh, for creating the special needs trust to handle the net distribution going to the client. Um, I think that's contemplated uh, in the CFR we just talked about, uh, 20 CFR 416.1528. That's not in connection with necessarily with a guardianship case because a state court judge, at least in our, our jurisdiction, um, not in guardianship court could approve that settlement fee. Um, and uh, so I, I'm feeling pretty good about that, and I probably will not submit a fee petition under that scenario where I get state court approval. Um, I think argument could be made that I could, I'd still need to do that. Um, but I'd also, the, the attorney fee uh, language in that section of the federal regulation talks about, well, if, you know, you get your fee approved, but then you have to deal with us later, that is to submit the, the special needs trust to Social Security. If you bifurcate, that is, divide your fee between what you did to create the special needs trust and then what you're doing to uh, get it approved by Social Security, um, that Social Security says you got to get a, approval for the latter part, for getting it approved by Social Security, not necessarily for the former part about creating and establishing the special needs trust. Um, that's a fairly technical argument about, you know, fee approval. If you want to be safe, just submit a fee petition for the whole thing. But if you want to be a little bit more on the edge about it, then I think you can make that argument and charge two different fees. Uh, one fee to create, establish the trust, another one, a fee to deal with Social Security and submit it uh, to them. Hold the fee for the latter part for, for submitting the document to Social Security. Might charge $500 for doing that. Put that $500 into the attorney's trust account. Uh, submit a fee petition for $500 not submit a fee petition for the $5,000 of creating the special needs trust. Um, it's a little bit edgy, but uh, I think it's arguable that clearly I'm not trying to do, uh, I think the criminal intent element of the criminal statute that we're under um, is, is lessened by saying, well, I am trying to interpret the rules you've issued, which are not that damn clear. And uh, so I'm trying to comply. I'm not trying to just be the ostrich, put my head in the fan and say, I'm not going to do anything with you guys. So I'm trying to do my best to comply. And uh, I'm sort of comfortable with doing that. Another area where we talked about, um, you know, maybe an exception that you don't need to get your fees approved is uh, grandpa comes in and he wants to leave a bunch of money for uh, one of his grandkids who is disabled. And that grandkid is not on SSI benefits right now. And this third-party special needs trust is not funded. Um, it's going to be funded with the life insurance proceeds or part of an estate once grandpa dies. Um, Social Security has a current rule now that says don't send us those types of trusts for review, those unfunded third-party special needs trusts. Um, because they may never affect the SSI eligibility of the person for a couple of reasons. Grandpa could die penniless. Grandpa's you know, entire estate could be taken over by the IRS since he was cheating the government forever. Uh, grandpa could change as well, or the beneficiary, the SSI claimant, could predecease. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of scenarios under which um, you know, I think the, the trust never being funded means it doesn't ever affect 
the uh, actual receipt or eligibility for SSI uh, benefits by a claimant. Okay, so stepping back on that court approval of the attorney's fee, what mm -hmm. do you think of maybe, because it, it, you know when you read the first CFR that ends 1525, it talks about authorizing a fee for your representative, and then the representative is defined as the actual person who was appointed by the court, and I think very few attorneys would meet that requirement but oftentimes they are hired by that person to submit the paperwork to court and get their fee approved by court. I think that that's not a huge leap to say that approving the attorney's fee by that court order would meet that exception. And my concern though is, you know, the plain language doesn't say there and their attorney, it just says them and their fees you know, the legal representative, guardian, or conservator, and not their attorney's fee. So I was trying to think of a way maybe to apply that exception without getting into too much trouble. And when I looked at SSA Form 1520, which is the petition to approve your fee, there is a section there that says, was any part of your fee approved by court? So is it possible that you could say, I'm seeking $0 in fee authorization, and then when it says the court order, you say yes, and then submit, say what your fee was that was approved by the court, attach the court order, the petition, the trust, and submit that and just say, you know, we're not really seeking your fee because we think this exception applies, but it's up to you to tell us if we're wrong. Yeah, and I think that goes to criminal intent. Again, you're saying this is my interpretation of your rules. I think I'm covered by the exception in this federal regulation that you, you just cited. Um, and you put that on the uh, fee Social Security fee petition form, which is SSA 1560. Oh, I would accompany it with a, another uh, of their forms, which is Social Security 1696-1696, which is appointment of representative, where the client and you sign an uh, appointment of representative that says you're waiving a fee for uh, submitting anything to Social Security if you're going to go that route. And, and, but I am charging the fee to be approved by the uh, state court judge. Um, again, just to reinforce, you know, that exception. Um, but it, but the, the, there are two separate um, regulations on attorney's fees. One is the broader one, which is uh, 416.1528, it talks about uh, representative giving services to a client before a state or federal court, but not direct dealings with Social Security. Um, the other one is the one we were just talking about where it says uh, the fee for a legal guardian, a court-appointed legal guardian, does not have to be approved by Social Security if it's approved by a state court, or a court-appointed representative. And I read that second one as applying to guardianship proceedings because uh, it's in the same sense. Uh, I think that's part of the reason I'm leading that way. And the court-appointed representative would be the following scenario. The legal guardian calls me saying that this individual on SSI is subject to a guardianship. I'm the court-appointed guardian. They just inherited $100,000. We're going to lose our eligibility. Can you help by creating a special needs trust? And I say to the legal guardian, get me a court order that appoints me by the guardianship court in advance. 
to create the special needs trust and pay my fee of $7,500. And in that scenario, I think I fall squarely within that rule. But that rule is a separate one, I believe, on guardianship as opposed to the more general one we were just talking about in Section 1528 that applies to all court proceedings. So when I was doing contested divorces for 28 years, part of the resolution of case could involve the marital settlement agreement where the payor, usually the husband, is going to provide alimony to a disabled wife or child support to a disabled child. And we create as an exhibit to that marital settlement agreement a special needs trust. Uh, and, and that gets submitted to the court for approval of the divorce case. I think that fits into this more general and broader example that we're given in 1528 of the regs. And when I read that one, it looked to me like what they were, and I'm, you know, again, I'm, I'm coming at this fairly new. Um, when I read that, it looked to me like the court order was, was, um, free from fee authorization unless any part of the services were also services in connection with a claim before the SSA. Right. I mean, I thought it was kind of a, you could bifurcate your services and then maybe just submit the part that dealt with the claim before the SSA to them separately. And then anything else to do with the court order you could get on your own without our fee authorization. I wasn't sure mm -hmm. how much that would, um, Practically speaking, I wasn't sure how helpful that would be unless I had the court issue an order saying this part of the fee was for SSI eligibility counseling and drafting, and this part was for non-SSI eligibility and counseling. I guess I'd go a little bit further than you on that because of the way the regulation reads uh, in their very first sentence, we shall not consider any service the representative gave to you, the claimant representative, any proceeding before the state to be services as a representative in dealing with us. So my divorce fee of $10,000, I don't think needs to be even approved by the divorce court. Um, the next sentence though says, however, if I also gave services to the SSI claimant in connection with all of this, I have to specify what, if any portion of the fee, I wanna charge for that. Well, that gives me the option to say, I can bifurcate this fee and say I'm charging $9,500 for the divorce case and $500 to deal with Social Security about the trust that's attached as Exhibit A to my marital settlement agreement. Um, and, and I think it's important to point out to people, too, that on that second part, Social Security is regarding their, their fee authorization net extends to any time we force Social Security by something we've done to have to review the claimant's eligibility. Uh, they define it as, quote, an action uh, of the Social Security Administration through their local staff. So uh, then I, I think, you know, this is a lot broader um, exception than I first, um, when I first looked at this. And I'm pretty confident that if I were doing a divorce, I could do that and be fairly safe that I'm not going to need to get my whole divorce fee approved by Social Security if mixed in all of those conversations there was stuff about the guy's SSI eligibility. I, I just don't know how practically that. So why don't we move on because I think there's other issues um, that we're yeah. talking about. So in addition to the 
you know, and again, I welcome anyone who has a different opinion to either email myself at kevin at urbatch.com or David, do you want to provide your email address if the, anyone has comments or questions? Sure, or, or tell people to get on the ASNAP listserv if they're a member of the Academy of Special Needs Planners because uh, we discuss this kind of stuff all the time. But my email address is david at lilisanlaw, one word, dot com. Lilisanlaw is L-I-L-L-E-S-A-N-D-L-A-W.com. And that, that reminded me that um, David has, has already done a wonderful webinar on this subject for the Academy of Special Needs Planners for all members. That webinar is located on your members' website and included in that webinar are extensive materials um, describing the situation and where we are with it, um, some suggestions, and a lot of background information. Um, I think and the forms. is going to end up wanting to look at this very closely and determine how they want to handle it. Um, David, so I just wanted to end our second podcast by maybe just going through some specific questions. I know that you and I have received um, multiple questions on this issue. Um, I'll start with one that I think we've already pretty much covered. Um, if an attorney only does what we call third-party planning, where they set up third-party special needs trusts for a parent who might set up a trust for a child that will be funded with their the parent's assets on their death or maybe as part of a, um, you know, some type of estate planning strategy, would that attorney then, in your opinion, be required to submit a fee authorization? In my opinion, clearly not. Okay. Not required. Okay. And then what if we change the facts a little bit and the person has, has a, um, third party who wants to create a special needs trust for a individual on SSI already and wants to immediately fund it with, you know, a home and maybe a, you know, hundred thousand dollar a year gift mm -hmm. with that attorney who created that plan. Do you think they would be subject to the SSA fee authorization? Absolutely. Yes. Because uh, if you look at Social Security's POMS rules on special needs trusts, they, the first rule in the Section 200 on the POMS talks about uh, third-party trusts, and Social Security has to review that third-party trust to see if it counts as an asset or doesn't count, what they call resources. Is it a countable resource or not a countable resource? Um, so I think in that scenario, uh, given that the um, beneficiary is an SSI claimant current, currently connect, collecting benefits? Absolutely. So this is where I think you and I have had some mild disagreement. And it's always been my understanding that unless there was some sort of direct claim with Social Security, doing, you know, as you were describing it, collateral work like a special, drafting a special needs trust, where the attorney had no intention of representing that person before the SSA and the SSA has not issued any written denial or they are in the process of an application that just creating a special needs trust wouldn't be in furtherance of a claim. And I know you have a different opinion about that. 
Yeah, if the, if in that scenario we just described where you fund a third-party trust today, but for other reasons the child beneficiary is not going is not getting SSI. Perhaps it's because he's um, his parents' income is deemed to him and he's not eligible for SSI. I don't think you need fee, fee authorization for that, even though you know this this child currently age four. When he turns 18, 14 years from now, the, the deeming stops. And in all likelihood, we know today that then there'll be an application for SSI. I don't think you need fee authorization for creating a trust that's, that's funded today, but is really not going to affect benefits until there's an SSI application, you know, in 2034, um, but not in 2019. But if the beneficiary was 21 and was receiving SSI, I don't see where the claim arises in that situation. With the same trust being established, with the same parameters, yeah, I don't I think see what the claim is. On what is a claim, but I think in reading the totality of the rules and, and everything, they're talking about um, actions we take to help acquire benefits or to continue benefits. And in the POMS examples D, one of them deals with continuing SSI eligibility, taking legal action, creating a trust that has the effect of continuing SSI eligibility. So it's not filing a new claim, it's continuing benefit eligibility. That Once you, you, you fall into that territory, you got to get the authorization. And I, I think that's a fair assessment. The issue I have, though, is I think um, where we might differ is I, I think that when there's an actual denial of an SNT and the attorney responds to that denial, that's clearly in the realm of SSA fee authorization. If they're amending an SNT in response to an SSA denial, that's clearly within the examples that, that they've described. Um, the, the new examples that we received state that. Um, in the other examples, the SSA and the attorney had some sort of interaction. There was an actual direct claim, like either the attorney agreed to apply for benefits on behalf of the person with a disability. That was example three. Um, later, when the parents decided to do that, um, the actual examples all have some kind of direct contact with Social Security. The problem with the written palms in the examples are the explanations, which when they try to describe why that does require fee authorization, they make such broadly worded statements. You can almost include any type of special needs planning. So again, this is where I'm having some frustration with the SSA when, he's, when they issued these palms. It's not easy to digest what they've said and put out like under this specific situation, you do or do not have to do a fee authorization. Obviously, if they would have issued this as a federal regulation and all of us would have had the opportunity to comment and raise these issues, we would have a much clearer result than some people sitting in the National Social Security office and who may have never practiced trust law ever deciding what they think uh, we do as trust attorneys. And that's why it gets really, really scary in terms of, uh, of understanding, first of all. But secondly, I worry about the fact that you and I can have differences of opinion about 
applications in certain scenarios. The problem is it's some U.S. attorney or it's some senior Social Security person who is deciding whether or not we've um, crossed the line into a federal criminal indictment for violating their very nebulous rule. And so I think there are certain things we can carve out and say always covered. There are certain things we can carve out and say never covered. But we can't say in any given factual situation that we can come up with an exact answer that 100% of people looking at it will agree. So we end up with disagreements. And I agree. I, I mean, as, as strongly as I believe that there, this is a very limited exception to the rule, I'm not, I don't think I'm willing to put my freedom and my reputation on the line just to prove a point. And if I'm wrong, you know, ending up behind bars. So even though I, I believe these palms are a limited um, expansion of what was already the practice, which was not to submit fee authorizations for special needs trust work, unless you were directly dealing with a claimant before the SSA, um, I'm still changing my practice. One of those things I'm doing, and you've already made some of these suggestions, and I'm sure you have others. One is in my third party planning, um, I'm putting, adding a provision into my representation agreement with the client that I am not representing them before the SSA. And I'm going right through the regulations and the POMs to, to say, I'm not doing any of the things you guys say I need to do to become a representative. I know that you've already noted the POMs at ENDS 005 that that may not necessarily protect me 100%, but I think it's very clear that the intent by me doing that is that I do not intend to violate these rules. Yeah, and, and I made another suggestion, which I know you're not going to do, and, and um, I don't see myself doing this either. There are attorneys that just do Medicaid planning. That's their primary the primary reason they get up in the morning and, and going to get up tomorrow and do it again. Um, and, and so for them, there might be another way to sort of bifurcate that's even cleaner in my view, which is to create kind of a firewall. They draft a special needs trust to preserve state Medicaid eligibility. They know as a matter of fact that it's potentially going to also continue SSI eligibility the clients sometimes will agree, hey, I don't want to give up. I want to give up my SSI and just make sure I have health insurance. Um, so they'll draft a trust that, that accomplishes that purpose. But I think a Medicaid law firm could say, we're only going to do the Medicaid special needs trust under the Medicaid statute, 14, uh, 42 U.S.C. 1396P D4A. But if you uh, want to continue your SSI, we'll give you the names of social security attorneys that you could consult to deal with your SSI eligibility um, if you want to continue that benefit, but we're not going to do anything with regard to that. And I think by transferring the responsibility to another law firm for the second part of it may create an opportunity to exempt uh, and and raise a uh, additional protection for that Medicaid planning uh, law firm. Uh, again, we're operating in unknown territory here, so we can't point to a case, to a regulation, to a rule, to anything that says, oh, yeah, that works. We're just trying to figure out how we can comply with the rules that are very badly drafted to try to make it more possible 
are more probable rather than less probable that we're not going to have a problem. So that's a, another good suggestion. Another one that I probably plan on implementing, especially because I do quite a few self-settled special needs trusts, um, which include pooled special needs trusts where we're helping them execute the joinder agreement and joining a trust that's already been drafted. Or if the client comes in, they have capacity, they're an adult, and they can now set up their own special needs trust thanks to the Special Needs Trust Fairness Act. Um, I am bifurcating and creating two separate attorney-client representation agreements, one that covers all work unrelated to anything with SSI. That includes complying with Medicaid rules, complying with selection of trustees, state trust laws, state fiduciary obligations, and the like. And then a second one that covers all SSI-related work, including counseling on SSI, drafting provisions in the SNT to comply with SSI, and then providing a copy of the trust to SSI. Take that separate fee agreement, take the fees, a flat fee, put it in my attorney-client trust account, and then comply with the fee authorization process by submitting SSA Form 1560. What do you think of that one? I like that. I would just suggest keeping um, time records with regard to the second one where you're putting the fee in your trust account pending Social Security approval for contacting Social Security or dealing with the SSI issues because you're going to have to submit a fee petition based on, you know, data service, description of service, and amount of time. So I just take what you just said and add and start keeping time records on that second part. And I think even attorneys who want to be more cautious could use that to attorney-client representation agreement for third-party trust as well. Um, Okay. (laughs) I mean, if they want to be, I mean, again, I think the language in the examples is so broadly written at at parts that it could cover third-party planning, even for somebody not yet on SSI. So I... Yeah, see, there's a point where you and I really disagree. I think if a person's not on SSI, may never become on SSI, you know, when they turn 18, they could be married at age 17 and their spouse's income and assets make them not eligible. I think if you're doing special needs planning in 2019 for somebody not eligible to potentially the year 2034, I, I strongly believe you're not covered. I don't worry about getting my fee approved for that, and I'm not going to submit fee petitions, and I'm willing to state that publicly. Yeah, and and quite frankly, David, I agree with you. I'm not doing that either. But when you read the examples and they say fee authorization is not required so long as the trust was not established for the purpose of affecting clients' eligibility for benefits, a third-party SNT potentially is to cover or, you know, if you're looking at the subjective intent of creating that special needs trust, it was to affect their eligibility for benefits and perhaps even SSI. Um, that's what concerns yeah, that's me. what's going on in your mind. And I think what social security is looking at is what are the actions on the ground? Well, um, I hope you're right. right. <laughs> but again, yeah, if we, wrong, somebody's going to jail and I don't want that to happen either. So I'm just, I think we're both in agreement with that. Um, yeah. It's what we're trying to do is come up with some plan for people to follow um, based off these, you know, very broadly and poorly written palm examples that uh, say one thing in the example and say something else in the explanation. Um, yeah. Let me let me just uh, suggest we 
talk about a couple of these questions because I know they're, they're going to be general. One of the questions we got after our webinar was, well, does this special needs trust rule cover supplemental needs trust? Hey, there's no difference between those two. ASNAP has on its website an explanation of why that's the case. Uh, does it cover a jointer agreement? Yes, it does. So if you're just asking somebody or helping them to get into a, uh, a existing pool trust and you're not drafting the pool trust document, just the jointer itself is enough to uh, trigger fee authorization. Um, do the trustees have to get approval for their fee? No, clearly they don't because the, the issue of trustee fees for uh, administering a special needs trust is dealt with in separate sections of the ponds and uh, they don't require the trustee gets their fee approved for uh, that purpose. Uh, one of the, uh, we had several questions on, well, what's the, what's the effective date of this new rule? Uh, which we stated was June 25 when it was published, but people ask, well, is there retroactive implementation of this rule? I did this SNT a year ago. Do I have to get that fee from a year ago approved? Um, uh, you know, we can't point to a, a sentence in the rule that says, no, it's not retroactively uh, applied, but I think it's pretty clear from establishing uh, or writing on the actual POMS rule effective June 25 that it really applies to uh, fees you're about to receive on or after that date. Um, what if I draft the trust, but I say, well, I'm not gonna tell Social Security about the trust. I'm gonna tell the client to submit the trust. Wow, you're just asking for a jail sentence. That's not gonna work. Whether you tell Social Security, here's this trust, or the client says, here's the trust, the client's gonna say, hey, you know, I got this trust. And then Social Security's gonna look at him and say, you're an SSI claimant. Uh, you, what law school did you go to? Oh, you didn't? Uh, who did this for you? Oh, thanks. Now we know who we're going to go after for not getting their fee approved. So uh, whether or not you submit or somebody else, uh, that's that's a different issue. Um, some people have asked, well, are personal injury attorneys covered? I, I think if they do the trust, trust drafting, they're covered. Um, what if they hire somebody? Uh, like us, to do the special needs trust. I think the personal injury attorney is not covered, uh, having to submit their approval for their one-third fee of collecting this $100,000 settlement. Um, but we are for, for making sure that the net funds from that are not going to affect the person's eligibility. Again, use the Form 1560, which is the Social Security form online, just go to socialsecurity.gov or just Google SSA form 1560. It'll pop up. Now it's a, a fillable online, tells you everything you need to know about completing that form and requires that both you and uh, the client sign it. Um, so once you submit it, you know, then how do you follow up about this? Unfortunately, I think uh, we'll primarily start following up at the local office, but they're the ones not reviewing this. So there is a uh, published list of which program service center is going to get my fee petition. Um, so I'll be able to, from that list that's available on the POMS, figure out which program service center has got my fee petition and what their phone number is for the particular staff person reviewing the fee. So there are things that can make this go a little bit better, but a lot of this is practical information and we tried to provide as much of that as we could in the written materials that were part of the webinar. So if people are not members of the Academy of Special Needs Planners, 
they should really think about doing that now because they can get access to these materials that I think will be extremely helpful in both understanding what to do. And then if you re review and decide, yes, I need to submit a fee petition, then what happens and what are the forms involved? Well, David, thank you so much. And I want to thank everybody who's listened to this podcast. I think this is a critical issue that we're, we are still hopeful, cautiously hopeful that the SSA will come back with some better guidance for us. But at this point, it's like, what are we going to do um, to respond to these issues? If you are an attorney and Social Security has reached out to you or your client about fee authorization for any of the work that you've done, we would love to hear about it. Um, again, my email address is my name, Kevin at Urbach.com, U-R-B-A-T-S-C-H.com. So please email me and let me know. David and I are with a group that is working on addressing this issue in a broader way. And so we're still working at that. Um, but right now we're dealing with what we've been handed by the Social Security Administration and we're doing our best to help everybody stay in compliance with the law. David, any final thoughts on this issue? Well, I guess the, the one piece of good news, keep watching the nightly news, the Trump administration and the new people at Social Security Administration are saying they'd like to get out of the fee approval business for everything, for wow. regular medical disability, for, for financial eligibility, for every purpose whatsoever. So, you know, we may get a more generic and much larger um, solution to this problem, although it will so significantly affect the ability of clients to get attorneys to represent them at all in any Social Security denial. Well, that'd be good news for us and bad news for the Social Security disability attorneys. But uh, again, thank and everybody. Bad news for clients. And so if you like this podcast, please share it with your friends and colleagues. Uh, we'd like to be able to reach as many people as possible with these educational uh, podcasts. Uh, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, or if you'd like to share the podcast, you can find it at pod617.com. Or you can look at my website, which is herblaw.com, U-R-B-L-A-W.com.